Hello and welcome to Beckett Talks, the new podcast from Leeds Beckett University. In these podcasts, we'll be showcasing our diverse community of students and academics, touching on the important themes that surround universities today. Hi everyone, welcome to the second podcast in our COVID-19 and culture series. My name's Susan Watkins and I'm Professor of Women's Writing and Director of the Centre for Culture and the Arts in the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities at Leeds Beckett University. In our first episode in this series, we explored what we can learn from history about pandemic and lockdown. And in this episode, we look at a few examples of how our lives and our engagement with culture have changed because of COVID-19. I'm joined today by three of my colleagues from the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities at Leeds Beckett. First, welcome Rachel Rich, who is a reader in modern European history. I'm also joined by Dr. Melanie Chan, who's a senior lecturer in media, and also by Dr. Aaron Andrews, who is research fellow in history. So obviously, there are so many different things that we could focus on in this episode. But one of the obvious things that's changed is the extent to which we're all having to engage with each other virtually, using platforms like Skype, Zoom, Teams, more than we ever have before. So I wanted to start with you, Mel because of your research into embodiment and virtual engagement. And I, I wonder how you think our relationship to our own bodies and those of others has changed during the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, studying the sensory aspects of bodily experience and digital technologies has shifted my understanding of how we interact with digital devices and screens. Previous studies have shown that actually the body is often perceived as a thing that we own or a container. And then from this perspective, the body is seen as a noun, kind of a static kind of thing, a static object where my research showing how we interact with digital technologies indicates that our bodies are in flux, where we're verbs, our bodies are verbs rather than nouns. That's fascinating. So that linguistic model kind of helps you rethink how we perceive our bodies. Looking at um, language and metaphor for the body as well, the container model, the idea that we have a body, that we own a body, and that somehow we're embodied. Interesting. So when when we experienced a, a lockdown in England earlier this year, in March, our daily lives became centred really on the home and the local area. So travel and physical activity were limited. Mm. So employees were encouraged to work from home using digital devices, their smartphones, their tablets, using broadband and so on. But our screen-based communication really did increase during that period. And we were restricted really to moving our bodies in our local area, walking, jogging or cycling in the local area. Though I think it's important to point out that not everyone was doing screen-based work, interacting with digital devices during this period. Of course, we must remember that there were lots of people, key workers, who were in actual physically demanding jobs um, Mm. during this period. So engaging with the screen is a relatively privileged position, really, isn't it? Yeah, it is a very privileged position. Um, My studies looked at 
our interplay of bodily interplay with smartphone devices and tablets, particularly looking at body and movement. Mm -hmm. So I was interested in the ways that which we peck at our keyboards, for example. How do you mean peck? Um, you know, you look for a particular key on the keypad when you're typing something out. That's right. kind of the peck model. Okay. Know? So it's a bodily activity. It's a hand-eye coordination activity. So it's not disembodied, I think, because often we think that screen-based interaction is, is somehow disembodied, but it's it's not. Um, and also the idea that we use facial recognition to actually unlock a device. So mm. our bodies are actually crucial. We can't use those devices if we're not actually in front of them, our face is in front of them. And going back to what I said earlier, looking at metaphors, I was interested in the particular sensory words or physical bodily words that we use to describe our interplay with digital technologies. So I thought about things like FaceTime, you know, mm. we talk about using FaceTime, there's Facebook and there's touch screens. So those are really going back to well, the, the body is a real thing. The real thing. The body is here. Yeah. And I want to go back to what you were saying in the introduction about seeing and hearing each other through applications such as Zoom, mm -hmm. Teams, Google Meet and Skype, that it shifted our relationship to our bodies. Because when we're communicating through these devices and screens we see each other really limited we're two-dimensional objects on a screen we can only see head and shoulders um so we, we and also you can't make proper eye contact with someone so for example if i if i look at your eyes now i it appears to you that i'm looking elsewhere because i'm not actually looking at the pinhole camera right but if i look at the pinhole camera suddenly it looks as if I'm looking at you so the eye line is different it's a different kind of experience just to explain to those listening that we're recording this using well we're using Skype today aren't we so we can see um, everyone on the tiles on the screen but you've just exemplified that point when you said you were looking at me from my point of view you weren't yeah mm -hmm. So our sensory experience has changed during COVID-19 because the body is now seen as problematic. It's seen as a site of transmission. Um, the latest government slogan is hands, face and space, you know, washing your hands, covering the nose and mouth and keeping apart from others. So our bodies now are a problem. Mm. We're supposed to stay away from each other, not actually have bodily contact, stay two metres apart, um, apart from people in your household, not, no shaking hands, no hugging, um, even sweating and breathing are, are now kind of seen as problematic aspects of our bodies. And I think what's particularly interesting is that we see our bodies unmasked on a screen through Skype and FaceTime and these things. But when we meet in person, we actually have to cover our nose and mouth. Mm. So again, we have a, a very different relationship with our bodies when we physically meet. Whether it's media, history, English literature or creative writing, studying at the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities at Leeds Beckett University challenges its students to think critically and creatively about the world around us. 
Located in a historic city thriving with graduate employment opportunities, the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities is a community of widely published and prize-winning historians and literary critics, media scholars and professionals, novelists and poets. So, if any of these subjects interest you, whether you're starting out on your educational journey or wishing to progress professionally, go to leedsbeckett.ac.uk forward slash CSH for more information. Yeah, absolutely fascinating stuff. I mean, do you think that broadly then, I mean, I'm, it's probably, you know, more complicated than this, but do you think that those digital relationships, those digital forms of communication have a negative effect on our bodies or, or, or do they allow us to escape our bodies in positive ways, perhaps maybe for disabled people, for example? Yeah, it's a bit of both. It's a bit of a mixed yeah. um, bag, if you like. In, in my previous book, which was called Virtual Reality Representations in Contemporary Culture, I looked at how virtual reality was positioned as a way to escape the body, particularly in popular Hollywood films such as well, The Matrix in the 90s, mm. where you know, Neo lives a fantastic life in The Matrix, but his actual bodily life is really quite drab. Yeah. And it's the same kind of scenario in the more recent Ready Player One, mm -hmm. where the kind of environment's ravaged. So people don't actually physically go out. They interact. They have their schooling. They socialize online. And it's almost like we're now living the Ready Player One scenario. It wow. feels a little bit bad during the pandemic. Yeah. But we can't escape the body. The body provides an anchor for our experience. We need a body to interact with digital devices or even virtual reality to become immersed in it. We need a body. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would say is digital communication is such a broad term, which covers many different objects, processes and practices. If we use digital technologies to excess, then it's going to have an impact on our bodies. It could be muscle problems, neck problems, the blue light stimulating us and so we can't sleep. But on the other hand, I want to talk about some of the positive things about digital technologies because it enables us to extend our bodies beyond our limited um, space and time. And there's some really interesting applications now, such as Run Zombies Run. Yes. Where you can mm. actually use a game type environment to become physically fit. So that shows kind of an intertwining of the body and digital technologies in a kind of positive way. That's great. So, so it's, it's not one thing or the other. And in fact, they're not in some ways as separate as we tend to think they are. You're, you're saying that they work in tandem in lots of ways, the, the digital and the physical, if you like. What about, for a final question, Mel, what does your research about representations of the body in contemporary culture tell us about the relationship between online and offline communication? So how the ways, I mean, you've said something about this really already, but anything to add about how people communicate and how that's changing? Yeah, I think how we describe these things is changing as well, because now there's no clear boundary between what's online and offline, mm. because FaceTime, yeah, it's, it is a physical face. We're interacting in a bodily way through our keyboard but yet we're also linked to this digital device. So a lot of scholarship is now saying that that clear divide between online and offline is becoming really blurred mm. because they're very much um, enmeshed. And what I would add is this idea of our bodily connection to these things. For example, we clutch 
our smartphones or we might be walking around doing a selfie holding the phone at arm's length so that we use and the other thing i think that's come to prominence recently is the idea that our smartphone devices are with us they're so intimate they're with us and mm. they follow us wherever we go we take them wherever we go and now with things like the nhs truck and trace app we can be kind of contacted we're, we're located by digital technology wherever mm. we are kind of out so those boundaries between offline and offline are very blurred yeah yeah and we see people well we used to see people walking around you know looking at their phones crossing the road looking at their phones and and things like that so yeah there's i think the idea that they're separate and you're saying that they're not separate that they're beginning to blur that's that's really fascinating thank you so much mel and that talking about walking around holding our phones walking around crossing roads etc leads me to bring in aaron who has researched on on the city and the urban environment and i'm particularly interested in aaron and how how you think our feelings and relationship with cities and urban culture have changed because of the pandemic because there have been some big shifts away from urban environments haven't there a really complex one to answer yeah as undoubtedly people's attitudes to cities their emotional responses uh, shaped by many factors including or especially where and how they spent lockdown. Right. Um, so I think for, for some people who uh, perhaps live in suburbs or rural areas, the city itself may have been seen as, as a site of contagion. Um, yes, I agree with that. Or elements of it um, as a site of danger. And this is something that we've been reinforced through news stories, which obviously... Um, frequently uh, focused on on cities on uh, these empty streets so, so kind of clearing that danger that, that that's put in the cities um so that's something that will have uh, have shaped people's experiences uh, or, or, or um, relationship to cities um for someone like myself who, who lives in the city center i think that there's very much a, 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 a very different experience Right. Uh, all of a sudden, this um, busy place that you're very familiar with your time becomes very quiet. Um, and while at first that was very unnerving, it becomes quickly uh, something something safe. You're, you're cleared of any kind of casual contact with people. You can start to to walk slowly around the city, engage with architecture or the townscape in a way that you can't when it's full of people shopping, going about their daily lives, um, commuting, everything. Mm. Um, so that experience of the city becomes much more leisured, even as leisure activities close down. That's um, fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I agree with you that the centre of Leeds has seemed just so different. And mm. I, I certainly haven't gone from the eerie to the consoling experience yet being in the centre of Leeds but I wonder if that has to do with the fact that I don't live there so the commuter experience as you've said has has kind of to some extent hugely diminished in terms of people commuting into the centre of Leeds but but as someone who lives there you, you were probably seeing it differently anyway from those who only travelled into and out of the city on a work day. Yeah I think I think so 
And, it, and in terms of that commuter experience, I, I, what, what I did find really interesting was going into the train station, which yeah. um, I do quite a lot. I live right next to it, so it's where the one of the closest Sainsbury's is. Mm-hmm. Um, and all, all of a sudden it's empty and, and you don't have that normal movement energy. You've just got this, this very quiet place and, and there's this, you, you can walk past the gates and you can see there's, there's this opportunity to move and escape and go wherever you want. Um, but you can't really do it. So yeah. there's that very strange way that you experience very familiar sites that you use all the time as someone as someone who lives here but it's changed from from the community commuters not being there walking around the financial district with all their empty offices that suddenly changes um, not having the commuters there so that experience of embodiment that mel was talking about in the city center mm. has transformed hasn't it because there's so much more space way fewer people so it's a different experience isn't it and i know that in the past, you've worked on this idea of urban crisis in relation to the inner city in the 1980s, when it was kind of the city was seen as a problem to be solved um, because of you know tensions and deindustrialization, the threat of well, the a- actual rioting in the early 80s, etc. Do you think that, that historical research, Aaron, helps us to understand at all the present situation in in big northern cities? Uh, I, I think it definitely does. So th- this urban crisis was was really underwritten by spatialized and racialized inequalities, which produced this crisis. Um, the, the failure of, of successive governments to adequately alleviate those inequalities, and as you say, that those those um, uprisings in the early 1980s, um, which in many ways were in response to these these inequalities as well as discriminatory police practices. Um, Sadly, we have seen an upsurge in. um, Mm. There there have been some recent reports of um, a huge increase in stop and searches of of black people, particularly in London, in in terms of how the police are are enforcing COVID restrictions Mm. in a disproportionate way. This has been something that I, I was very worried about as soon as the the COVID Act and some of the elements of that were announced, this kind of potential that was built into that legislation for discriminatory policing. Mm, uh, and and to discrimin- bring in Mel here as well, I mean, that the notion of stopping and searching someone a- absolutely mm. connects those notions of embodiment and, yes, as you say, usually an urban environment and, and usually a, a particularly unequal one, I would think. Mm-hmm. So it become again. It's it's that idea that the body is somehow a, a problem. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that needs to be kind of managed and controlled. So you know what, where a particular body is and what a particular body's doing. Right. That's become yeah. so prominent, really, in the last few months. Yeah. Great. Thank, yeah. Well, it's not great, but yeah, fascinating. Anyway. Um, yeah, so absolutely. sorry, Aaron. Carry on. Oh, no. So I I, I just think. Um, inequalities which underwrote this this 1980s urban crisis they've not gone away mm. um, we've we've got better at hiding them yeah. uh, um, certainly with with regeneration um, urban regeneration projects in the 1990s and 2000s they sort of become hidden away behind this veneer of, of gentrified regenerated space um, you, you can't see the, some of the physical markers but 
in in terms of thinking about about that how how those inequalities continue to 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 shape shape us in the present situation they really tell us a lot about who is exposed to the virus um yeah. so when we think yeah. about key workers that's a term that originally comes from housing policy and people who provide essential services the term key worker the, the term key worker it's from a london housing scheme right uh, and it's I, I, this is my understanding of it, and, and it's um, people who work in essential industries provide essential services, but are not paid enough to be able to afford housing in London. Yes. Uh, right. So, so they are designated as key workers for the purposes of this housing scheme. Um, so again, it just really shows us the effects of inequalities and how that term has has come to mean so much more in 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 the light of, of COVID. Um, but it's also um, these inequalities, it's, it's thinking about who has access to outdoor space. Mm. Um, when we think back to all those newspaper headlines about people, shock horror, going out into the park on a warm day, even if they were two metres away from anyone else, they're this this um, threat, embodied threat, to, to, to link it back, back um, to Mel. But it's it's a result of, their, of, of, of the inequalities that they experience, the lack of access to outdoor space, poor housing mm. and also who, who relies on public transport i've already said about public transport being kind of this looming threat but but transport poverty means that mobility is limited for some yes. people yes. and they rely yes. on public transport which raises their own risk of exposure but also um i don't know if you remember back when there used to be daily briefings and, and there was always a slide on the number of people using buses and trains um so yes. people are still reliant on that, but they it's something that they shouldn't do. It's this kind of conflicting thing of of trying to encourage people not to do something that they rely on to go to work, to 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 get groceries, to do everything. Um, so it's, it's really these inequalities have, have really come through in everything. That's fascinating. And I, I, I'm really interested in the way you find the roots of that as early as the 80s in in this in this notion of urban crisis that that was around then and i spe- specifically wanted to ask you about the city of liverpool because that's where you did lots of your research so i wonder if you've got any thoughts on the situation in liverpool in relation to how it uses that the, the discourse around that city how that conversation has has used notions of the city as a as a crisis point or a problem that go right back to the 1980s yeah well um ever since the the um 1960s i suppose liverpool has always been something of a, a laboratory for central government um initiatives to try and solve urban problems so in right. many ways it being the first tier three is just another example of, of Liverpool as a laboratory city trying to find out whether these things worked. Um, obviously, Leicester itself was the first one to go into a, a local lockdown, but Liverpool had the first of this experimental tiered system um, right. as, as tier three. Um, but I, I think Liverpool's urban crisis saw the city's population more than half during the 20th century. Um, mm. And this had really important impacts in terms of uh, local government finances and the provision of services um kind of the mundane things of everyday life that you don't really want to have to think about but are really important to 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 
people's lives. Getting your bins emptied, etc. Getting your bins emptied, but 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 also um, provision of education, transport, hospital beds. Mm, mm. Um, all all of these things were affected by that urban crisis, and that that to an extent continues. But the inequalities also affect people's bodies. There's been a lot of uh, a lot of research into how deprivation and racism can really dramatic health implications. Right. Um, and this raises risk factors for hospitalisation or, or, or worse in terms of, of COVID-19. The number of beds across the UK has halved in the last 30 years. Um, so that's further, that, that kind of central policy has further worsened the, the sort of local circumstances. And the, the number of ICU beds has been decimated, um, mm. which leads to annual winter NHS prices. Mm. Um, we see it every single year with people queuing in, uh, queuing out out the door to get in, just just in quote normal times. Um, so all, all combined, these have put huge pressures on Liverpool hospitals and and the local authority, the hospital's ability to treat patients, to have enough beds to have enough capacity and the local authorities' ability to um, support local businesses, um, to, to um, provide additional infrastructure for, for test and trace independent of central government. So I think to an extent, this is, this is one reason why Liverpool went first. It needed that extra support. Mm. It had those, to, to a greater extent than other places, it had those pressures on, on the local NHS. Um, and it's interesting that it was it was Greater Manchester rather than Liverpool that that became the focus of this local government resistance to central government this time. Yeah, Liverpool City Council famously rebelled against Thatcher's government in the 1980s. It wasn't the only one, but it lasted longer than any of the others. Mm. Uh, so I, I think it's interesting that, that that didn't happen this time, perhaps because of the way that, that the right wing press may have seized upon these narratives of a militant Merseyside right. uh, set against, you know, um, they may have been more willing to, to listen to another local authority raising issues. So but do you think Liverpool almost deliberately didn't want to get into that same story? Do you think, and and did everything to avoid it? Is that what you're suggesting, or do you think it's not as deliberate as that? I I, I think it's difficult to say whether it was deliberate. Yeah. Um, mm. I, I think if there was a choice, that may have been an influencing factor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the erosion of services, the impact of inequalities um, on on people in the city and the city itself over several decades leading to that that immediate pressure and and the need to do it straight away i think is was more influential yeah um, thinking about the politics linking it back to the 1980s i think created some interesting questions mm, mm. um and perhaps ones that we can't really answer until you know, some time's passed yeah the archives open people are willing to to record some oral histories so there could be some interesting very interesting studies to be done scholars of the future for sure great thanks so much Aaron that's fascinating stuff so if I could finish um, by bringing in Rachel for the last part of the podcast because the the key issue that's emerging across 
what we've said so far is this the importance of embodiment and the body and one of the ways in which we have found some solace perhaps during lockdown but also a concern that's been a real problem for some people is sustenance food and Rachel as a food historian perhaps you could tell us something about how our relationship with food has changed during the pandemic from panic buying at the start to the popularity of home baking as the lockdown progressed. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? We've been in this state of COVID pandemic for so long now that Mm. we're already maybe feeling nostalgic for when people were panic buying their loo rolls off the shelves of Sainsbury's. Um, And I do think we've gone through all sorts of phases. I don't know if it's going to have permanently necessarily changed people's relationship with food, because I think that our relationship with food is always somewhat fraught mm. and prone to to being thrown into discord in times of crisis. So, I mean, people went instantly, I think, to thoughts of, of wartime rationing when we started panic buying. But there are other moments in our even more, you know, in our more recent history and also in more distant history where people have had to react in all sorts of ways to food shortages You know, I think even in the early uh, 2000s, there was a a whole year's fuel protest strike that I remember. I was still new to Britain, so it was a very strange event for me, having grown up in a country where just the idea of food shortages doesn't exist in people's minds. It occurred to me in 2000, when everyone was buying all the bread off the shelves, that there must be some link to a historical memory that British people have, certainly the older generations who lived through rationing, which makes people rush out buy all the food, Canadians don't seem to have that impulse. We don't react to a crisis by buying off all the bread off the shelves. Um, Although I think that during the COVID crisis, pretty much globally, everyone's been doing that. But also, I think the panic was linked to the kind of the baking craze, which was an interesting sort of middle class response, which I definitely was, you know, a participant in, which was like, oh, I'm stuck at home, might as well show off my skills on Instagram or whatever. I've never been a baker before, but during the pandemic, I've become, as it turns out, you know, pretty decent at it. Um, And it links to some of the stuff I think that Mel was talking about, about how we cope with you know, the disembodied experience of of working on screens is to go away maybe and do something extremely tactile and a little bit messy and physical, which baking is. But I think that we're now in a new phase of our relationship with food in the pandemic, which I really want to link to some of the really interesting things that Erin was saying about the kind of structural inequalities that have deep roots, but that have been really exposed during the pandemic, mm. and I particularly am thinking about the fact that as we record this, we're on the final day of the uh, children's half-term holiday in the UK, um, and there's been a, ma- a major um, national response to food poverty for children. Good morning, welcome to Breakfast with Louise Minchin and Dan Walker. Our headlines for you this morning. Footballer Marcus Rashford's new goal, the Manchester United striker, tells Breakfast why he's heading up a task force to make sure children don't go hungry. I feel like at times people think that they're being looked down on if they ask somebody for help and I think in this generation that we're in that's one thing that, that should change. 
the the fact is that you know maybe there would be fewer hungry children if there hadn't been years of austerity but nonetheless it is the pandemic that's thrown this into stark relief yeah and, you know, um i think that it's become a little bit um so I've been involved in trying to tweet a lot about sort of, you know, happy food stories about, you know, what are you cooking during your pandemic time at home, but that we've stopped doing those tweets lately, me and my, uh, my research team, because we realized we were just completely not enjoying tweeting happy food stories, whilst we were also retweeting responses to Marcus Rashford's campaign to feed poor children during half term. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I think that, you know, I think that we started off with this feeling of we're all in it together, because we're all trying to buy all the bread off the shelves, through a period of like, oh, isn't it nice to be at home and have time to bake with your kids, to now being like, oh, no, actually, food is what it's always been. It's the most stark reminder of these inequalities that we have to live with. Yes, and I, I agree with that. I think that's a powerful account of, of what we've been through. And it concerns me for sure that we seem to be back to almost Victorian philanthropy in terms of, you know, a celebrity footballer trying to, for absolutely the right reasons, do what some would view as the job of government. And also with local restaurants who can't be in great situations themselves, you know, economically, having to provide for, for hungry kids over half term. So, yeah, it's um, it's a difficult place for us to be in. Um, yeah, and I, th I, th I think it's very Victorian and yeah. reminiscent of things we've read in Dickens. If we picture like little children being made to line up outside their local restaurants, what, with like a little hat in front of them to fill with some scraps of food? I mean, it's an atrocious image, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I know that your research has um, covered in the past things like George III's menus and that relationship between national identity and food. Um, do you think there's anything that's particularly British? I know you said earlier about the, the difference in, in, in how Canadians don't necessarily immediately think of stockpiling but, but, or panic buying. But, but what about that sense of a British identity that you're researching at the moment? Yeah, I wonder whether maybe when we're feeling nervous about our place in the world, which we all are now, whether we might go to our comfort foods, mm. you know, and that yeah. that is, you know, I mean, you don't even have to get too intricate in terms of thinking about what what national foods are to kind of recognize that those of us who were lucky enough to have a nice home where we were fed by someone who love us might want to eat those foods when we're feeling a little bit less secure about the world around us. And I think people are doing that. And I think also that, you know, that the people are doing a couple of things maybe at home um, if they're sort of spending more time at home as we all are. And one is trying some fancy things, you know, like baking a new kind of pie or uh, trying a new recipe book, but that also we are probably also going to our comfort zone, yeah. you know, so yeah. if, if, you know, for me, it's like mac and cheese, like my mom used to make it. And for my husband, it's like roasting a chicken on a Sunday afternoon so that the whole house has that lovely British roast dinner smell, which by the way, is very comforting and I recommend it. Um, <laughs> so maybe, you know, maybe it's not about 
Britishness so much as it's about our kind of unique feelings that we have about the food that makes us feel okay. Yeah, and that's about family and memory and those kinds of things. But Rachel, I also know that you have been baking something from George III's menu recently, an 18th century pie. So I know we're not supposed to be thinking too much about that kind of thing, but do tell us a little bit about that just to finish on a bit more of a positive note if possible well I did yeah no absolutely I'm so glad you asked I did get this opportunity thanks to the British Academy I was supposed to be showcasing some of my research in London and then of course that got interrupted by the lockdown and so instead they invited me to try doing some of the baking at home which we were going to get a caterer to do um, and to film myself Um, And so that was a really interesting experience. First of all, it was my first experience of doing some of this kind of embodied research where Mm. you actually live the thing you're doing. And absolutely, again, to kind of hark back to some of the stuff Mel was saying at the start. Yes, when we use our bodies to experience the limits and the processes and the the, things. you know, the content of what we're writing about, it does change that experience. When you're doing historical cooking at home, you can't recreate everything exactly because the ovens we use are different. Even the kind of flour that we have access to is not the same as what it would have been in the 18th century. But there was still something really novel for me in terms of understanding what it's like to do that kind of cooking. And we cooked two different pies. My husband helped me. He was the uh, research assistant slash film (laughs) film person for the day. Um, And the first one we tried was called a Cheshire pork pie, um, which has equal parts pork and apple, plus a ton of butter and a ton of white wine, like half a bottle of white wine. Um, And it was kind of like lavish and luxurious, but really horrible to eat. Oh, how disappointing. (laughs) I know. It was like both really too sweet and too bland. Um, And then the other one was something called a raised beefsteak pie, which appears frequently in George III's kitchen. So that was the one I used for my British Academy video. Um, but again, it it was really interesting that you do something that's quite lavish. It was a quite luxury recipe for its time. A lot, a lot of meat, like very rich, very densely packed uh, pie, but not at all to our taste. And so we did, you know, have a little sort of family discussion that about the kind of historical evolution of taste. And my 13-year-old son summarized it by saying, I think nowadays nowadays people prefer things like spicy burritos. Yeah, and that was the right, end of right. the discussion. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it did give me a better understanding of how tastes have evolved over time and of what, it, you know, the difference between just reading recipes and actually tasting them. Great. Okay, Rachel, thanks so much. So, yeah, I think that notion of food as comfort food, but also that food tastes do change and are affected by history and by place and space that draws together really nicely everything that we've been saying about embodiment um, different kinds of environments from the urban to the suburban to the local and and also stuff about our um, eating habits during lockdown thanks so much to my contributors i'd remind our listeners to check out our contributors blogs in the LBU Together series which is on Leeds Beckett University's website and also to join us for the next in the series which will be about the relationship between COVID-19, social inequality and resistance. The podcasts in the Beckett Talk series are released every Tuesday so don't forget to check our social media channels on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook to find out more details on our next episode. 
Hope to see you next week.